1: Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts and philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Big shout out to the Patreon supporters, the patrons over there, and everyone who subscribed at YouTube, and those who leave comments on Apple Podcasts. If you guys like the show, please do one of those three things, or all of those three things. That will be awesome. Uh, not too much about myself today, because we're going to be getting in. With a very special guest. I have with me Dr. Michael Humer, and we're going to be talking about his new book, uh, Knowledge, Reality, and Value, and just philosophy in general. So we'll see where the conversation takes us. Let's bring him in. Dr. Humer, thanks again for coming on the podcast.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, so um, I'm hoping that we can cover a lot, but uh, the outline I sent you is pretty uh, expansive, so we'll see. But just starting off, how'd you become a professional philosopher? What would that path look like?
2: Well, I mean, I guess I did the, uh, the usual thing. I mean, I became a professional philosopher by going to graduate school <laughs> um Yeah, I mean, I I took um, took philosophy classes in um, in college at UC Berkeley, and um, you know, when I the, the first time I took a philosophy class, it was I thought it was the most interesting thing that, I, that I'd ever been exposed to, and also I thought. Um, it was the first time when in a class you are allowed to discuss things that matter yeah. right so like i contrast that with the science and mathematics classes which teach you a lot of things that are important but there's no discussion of it hmm. there's just here's the accepted facts learn them yeah and then there were other classes like so in the english classes there was discussion but it was always of trivial things that don't matter at all
0: mm-hmm.
2: right so you are allowed to discuss an author's literary technique mm-hmm. or the interpretation of the text but you are not allowed to discuss what is true mm-hmm. right? So, like, we read the play Waiting for Godot by Samuel Beckett, which, according to the teacher, was about waiting for God. You know, these two guys in the play are sitting around waiting for Godot, and he never shows up. And allegedly, it was about waiting for God who never appears. Mm -hmm. Um, I later heard that that was a uh, disputed interpretation. But anyway... (laughs) but we were not allowed to discuss God and whether God exists and why he never shows up and stuff like that, that actually matters.
0: Yeah. We're only
2: allowed to discuss things like, oh, the playwrights, literary technique, like we're all going to become literary critics. Anyway, this is my feel about why I like philosophy better than all of the other subjects. You yeah. actually talk about stuff like whether we have free will, whether there's a God, is there a beginning of the universe and all those things. Right. Yes. Anyway, So I decided, um, And uh, there were at least some jobs in that field, you know, so I decided I was going to do that. You know, as long as there were some jobs, I thought, yeah, I'll get one of them.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, and congrats, by the way, on getting one of those. Um, Not everyone can, but for you, was it more about Facilitating those conversations and getting other people to talk about them or is it more about the personal I want these I want to th- think for myself and discover these ideas and answers to these ideas maybe a mixture of both What what, what was it that yeah. made you want to go on and teach
2: yeah mostly I was just fascinated with the subject hmm. and so and, you know, it turns out that uh, there's a job where you get paid for thinking and talking about philosophy, right? Um, I like talking about philosophy because I just love philosophy, right? Yeah. Like, I just like the subject so much that if we're talking about it, then I, I feel good.
1: I love that. I think that's so cool, too. I, I'm, I'm a similar way where it's like, oh, wow, we get to just, people just sit around and, and they can talk about this stuff and... Uh, we're going to go over a couple of myths about philosophy and philosophers, um, ones that, you know, there's been no progress, but or it's just armchair philosophy. Um, and, and that's not true. And there's been a lot of progress. So I, I can't wait to jump in with uh, on that question with you. But before we get there, as a good philosopher, uh, you've probably define your terms. What What is philosophy?
2: Yeah, right. Yeah. So, I mean, as I say in the in the book, um,
0: mm-hmm.
2: the way that people learn a concept isn't by having somebody tell them yeah. what it is them what the thing is. The way they learn a concept is by getting examples of it, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, what I do is, well, I I talk about the different branches of philosophy and the questions that people study in in them, right? Like, okay, so there's this, you know, branch of philosophy called metaphysics, where they talk about the general nature of reality, and the questions like, uh, is there a beginning of the universe? Do people have free will? Are mind and body two separate things? Or is the mind somehow... Really, the body, like, whatever, identical with the brain or something. Okay, so you know, and you just give examples like these. Um, I give the example of the ship of Theseus problem, which I like because it is a not because it's like the most important. It's not really that that important as a philosophical problem, but it's mm-hmm. such a paradigm example, and it's such a clearly not anything other than a philosophical problem,
0: right? Yeah,
2: so, you know, the ship gets all of its parts replaced right over the course of several years. You know. One plank at a time, and then at the end, is it still the same ship? Mm-hmm. And you can just very clearly see how this is not a scientific question, there's no empirical evidence to gather about this, right? But, um, you know, it's also not just like purely arbitrary, you can see that there are logical arguments that you can give. Yeah, like, there's a logical reason why someone would say that it was the same ship, and there's also a logical reason why someone would say it wasn't the same, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, yeah, that,
1: I, I think that's great. I was so glad to see you. You mentioned the ship of Theseus because that is one of my favorites for the same reason that you just mentioned. Um, and I, I might just make it uh, a habit of asking philosophers how they yeah. solve it. Mark Mark uh, Sainsbury, Dr. Sainsbury said um, he he probably leans more towards fission. He thinks it's a, a possibly a case of fission that there are two ships now. And oh. some of my other philosopher friends have said, um, you know, uh, physical objects like ships are vague concepts. And so, you know, it's just kind of hiding in the vagueness problem. Uh, do you, do you have a solution to that? What do you think, what do you, what do you make of the ship of Theseus?
2: Uh, I mean, I didn't really try to solve it per se. I mean, I was sort of sympathetic to, you know, it's a semantic question. Mm -hmm. Right. So in some sense, there's not an objective answer. Hmm. That doesn't mean there's not an answer.
0: Right.
2: Like, there could be an answer, but it would be partly determined by our conventions. Yeah. And therefore, it would not be of any deep metaphysical significance.
1: Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And so maybe if you if if you're if you're coming into the question with certain other questions or other answers in mind that you're presupposing, you'll get a different answer. And so maybe if you think like uh, uh, if you're more inclined towards muriology, you'll think, oh, it's the continuous thing that. Keeps uh, taking in new parts. That's what it is. Or, or if you're more historical minded, it's the actual boat parts that have been replaced. I can, yeah, I can yeah. see that. I
2: mean, You know, yeah. I guess there's a view, meriological essentialism, right? Yeah. Right. Um, as soon as you replace one part, no longer the same object, right? Right. And yeah. you can see why you would say that, right? You would you would have to say that in order to avoid it being the same ship all, after all the parts have been replaced, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I've had we've had that answer on the show uh, from from Dr. Taylor Sear, I believe he said that one as well. Yeah. So all that to say, ship of Theseus, I do like that for introducing people to philosophy. And I was so glad to see you do that. Uh, just a, a brief question on like methodology. Um, do you have an opinion on the so called, you know, analytic continental divide? Are you, are you an analytic philosopher? And and should we hate the continental folks?
2: Uh, yeah, basically <laughs> so, um, <laughs> great. Yeah. I have a blog post where I talked about I two blog posts, I guess, where I talked about analytic philosophy and continental philosophy and what was wrong with each of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, in my view, what's wrong with continental philosophy is, is more than what's wrong with analytic philosophy. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, people got mad at me. <laughs> like, <laughs> people that like continental philosophy got mad about that. But basically, um, you know, what you should do in philosophy is, these are, these are some things that are important. Number one, be clear,
0: mm-hmm.
2: like, in what you're saying so people know what the hell you're saying. Number two, give arguments for your views if they're not obvious. Like, you know, if you're, you're taking controversial view, give a reason for it. Mm-hmm. And number three, address objections, right? Like, what would the counterargument be from the other side? And then talk about that and then try to say, you know, try to say your response. And yeah. continental philosophers don't do any of those. Right? <laughs> like those are the three main things you have to do yeah. Yeah. to be a philosopher, and they're like famously, you know, against all of them, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I I tend to agree with you. The one the one thing maybe that pulls me here and there by some continental folks is they they say that they're asking the right questions, whereas analytic folks are so bogged down in like. I don't know semantics or something. I love analytic philosophy, so I'm kind of partial to that, anyways. But they they say, well, we're we're thinking big picture, world world building kind of things. Um, has analytic theology or analytic philosophy um, like punted on the the big philosophical questions of meaning and purpose and and the good life?
2: Uh, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, as I say, I had another thing about what was wrong with analytic philosophy.
1: Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh-huh.
2: In, like in my view, there's a lot too much focus on uh, semantic questions, mm-hmm. and like you know, because like I think that doesn't matter that much, you know. Like, what, are, what is what is the analysis of this word, right? And also, I think it's fruitless, right? Like, I think you can't, in fact, analyze, um, you know, most concepts, right? Yeah. Almost none of the concepts maybe no interesting philosophical concept actually has an analysis right so then you spend all that time trying to do that and you fail and um whatever and it's just not that interesting anyway um Um, wittgenstein's
1: like rolling in his grave right now
2: (laughs) yeah well yeah i mean you know actually wittgenstein had some interesting insights Mm -hmm. but also like he was Um, he was just like too obsessed with talking about language and conventions and whatever. His answer to any philosophical problem is, oh, it's something about the way we use language. No. (laughs) That is a small part of reality. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. um, Oh, but, and kind of like um, with academic, maybe academic research in general has this phenomenon of becoming Mm -hmm. hyper-specialized. So, I mean, I don't know if this is you know, if this is about analytic philosophy or just about academic philosophy, yeah, you have to focus on smaller and smaller questions. This happens partly because there's this norm that to get published, you have to say something new. Yeah. So, and it's super hard to say something new about like a problem that's been discussed for 2000 years.
1: Yeah. Right.
2: So what you could do is like chop it into tiny little pieces or like have a, have a view that's so tied to the very recent literature,
0: mm-hmm.
2: right? It's like you're just commenting on what this person said about this other person's argument for this, whatever. Yeah. So it's so detailed. And so, um, you know, just like uh, parochial that it wouldn't have been said before in the previous 2000 years. So, so that's what you do. Right?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right. Well, looking, looking over your work, um, it's kind of hard to peg you as like, what 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 kind of philosopher are? You? It seems like you're just a philosopher, philosopher, and which is awesome. I like that. Yeah. What do you when when you think of yourself? When you describe yourself, maybe to your colleagues or something, or someone asks you what what subfield you specialize in, do you do you consider yourself a specialist in a certain subdiscipline of philosophy?
2: Well, that, it reminds me of one time I was introduced at a conference um, by saying, you know, this is Professor humor, He specializes in philosophy, broadly construed.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> right, yeah. Like I say, well, I do epistemology, ethics, metaphysics, and political philosophy. Yeah. So that's a lot. It's not all, but right. it's a right. lot.
1: Yeah. Well, what what uh, what did you focus your dissertation on?
2: Yeah, it was in epistemology. Okay. It was about um, well, how we gain perceptual knowledge, basically. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to answer um, problems of external world skepticism and defending a direct realist account, which occurred in my first book. Yeah, I sort of rewrote it for the first book.
1: Okay. I, I definitely have to check that one out. I, I love – I think the skeptical questions are some of the best. And just when I thought maybe um, they weren't a big deal, I started reading Barry Stroud, and he just wrecked me and was like, nope, 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 nope. We have to, we have to go back to these questions. They haven't been sufficiently answered. <laughs> So you
2: no, know, Barry Stroud was my um, epistemology professor. At
1: oh no way, that's awesome! Yeah. did and, did how, what was that like? Were you uh, like cordial with each other, or did you did you guys beef with each other? And,
2: and yeah, do, I mean, you know? it was a, well, it was a really big class. I think
0: uh-huh.
2: Gee, this was like over twenty years ago. So <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, he had an occasionally dry sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Like, um. yeah, we're all sitting in the class talking, like, some student is coming in and they're, like, having a hard time opening the door and they finally get in. And Jerry Stroud says, it's a difficult class to get into.
1: <laughs> See, that's, that's gold. I love that. Man, that's really good. Did you, by chance, have, have any classes with, with Donald Davidson?
2: Uh, no. Okay. I think, yeah. I think he was there, but I missed it. I didn't know who the famous um, philosophers were at the
0: time. Yeah. When I graduated.
1: So. Yeah, yeah. That's that's how it goes. And then you you graduate and find all that out. Uh, well, so I wanted to get into some myths that you cover just in your first chapter of uh, I should show the book Knowledge, Reality, and Value: A Mostly Common Sense Guide to Philosophy. And it's right here. There's actually um, some really good blurbs on the back. Uh, oh, yeah. Plato says that my work is all a series of footnotes to my humor, which. I, th- I found pretty amazing there. <laughs> Aristotle says this book is way better than my lecture notes, and on and on we go. So, uh, yeah. just just fantastic endorsements you got there.
2: Yeah, I know. I was really happy about that. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> got to yeah. be true, right? Otherwise,
1: I couldn't print it. Right. That's that's what yeah. I was thinking. Yeah. So you go over these these four myths about <clears throat> philosophy or, or philosophers, and, and myth one is philosophers sit around all day arguing about the meaning of life and the nature of truth. So that's that's kind of a myth that's proposed. Uh, what do you make of that myth?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, so those are, you know, it's not so bad because those are, in fact, philosophical questions, but the meaning of life doesn't get a lot of um, airtime in philosophy, mm-hmm. right? That is not a widely discussed question. Truth is, the nature of truth is discussed a little more, but if you looked at the literature on what truth is, you're probably going to be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> probably not going to be what you were expecting, it's going to be sort of like linguistic analysis uh, mm-hmm. and sort of like the logic of the word true, mm-hmm. you know, like what things logically follow from a sentence containing the word true. Okay. So anyway, um, but, you know, there's there's lots of other stuff that philosophers talk about, Yeah, there's lots of interesting stuff. Um, we probably should talk more about the meaning of life than we do. Yeah. But uh, I think it's sort of like too fuzzy a concept for analytic philosophers.
0: Yeah.
1: Like, you what do you mean meaning? <laughs> and what do you mean life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Humer, if if, if a philosopher, an uh, analytic philosopher, were to take this up to hear this podcast and go, hey, that's right, we should work on that more, what what sub, does that fall neatly into a sub-discipline, or is, yeah. the meaning I mean, of life?
2: I mean, I guess it's ethics, right? Okay. You could say value theory. Yeah, probably. sure.
1: Okay. And then the epistemologist can come along and go, well, how do you know that's the meaning of life? And then... Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Okay. So then uh, myth number two, philosophy never makes progress. Philosophers are still debating the same things they were debating 2,000 years ago. What do we make of this myth?
2: Yeah, so false, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's worse than the first one, right? Because it's just completely wrong and also very widely held, right? Yeah. Uh, So it is true that there are issues that were discussed 2,000 years ago that are still being discussed today. But if if you like open the journals, it is not going to be hard to find things being discussed that were never discussed more than hundred years ago.
0: Mm.
2: Right. So like um, people talking about expressivist metaethics.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. I promise you that was not discussed by Plato <laughs> or Aristotle. Um, inflationary theories the of truth. No, that yeah. was not. Right. That's, you know, that's uh, in the last century. Mm. And, you know, just like a whole bunch of theories. Okay. Um, the physicalist theories about the mind. Right. Yeah. Uh, there weren't any functionalists in Plato's time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Probably some artificial intelligence stuff in there too. Yeah.
2: yeah I mean, okay. I, like, I like to say that um, there has been progress in philosophy. So, and you know, when I list the items of progress, you're going to think they're trivial, mm-hmm. but they're not at all. Right. So, you know, Aristotle thought that slavery was uh, perfectly just. Yeah, because they were natural born slaves, <laughs> and um, you know the best thing for them is to have somebody telling them what to do all the time. Mm. Uh, nobody thinks that anymore. Yeah, that's philosophical progress, right? Yeah, slavery is unjust as a philosophical proposition, if anything is, right? Yes, um, you know, people, uh, Plato thought that democracy was a terrible form of government, right? <laughs> and that you right. need to have dictatorship by philosophers. Yeah, uh, nobody thinks that anymore, right? You know, nobody wrong. thinks
1: that is is are are Doctor Humor in the deep recesses of your mind. You, you're not thinking that might be a good idea there.
2: Philosopher <laughs> well, kings. Uh I mean, only if it was me, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. If it was some of the other philosophers, I wouldn't trust them.
1: That's right. Um, yeah.
2: Anyway, so you know, we we found out. You know, why is this? Well, it actually, it turned out that democracy is better than dictatorship.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, even dictatorship by philosophers. Yeah. So, right. Uh, Right? And like, you know, a lot of the, like, there's stuff that's platitudinous to today, mm-hmm. but was not at all, right, in the yeah.
1: past. Yeah. So sometimes uh, people, I can't remember if you talked about this in the book or not, but a lot of times people will say that um, a lot of these branches of knowledge, uh, human knowledge, have have spun off of philosophy. So science has spun off. And uh, uh, psychology is another one that's spun off. These were properly in the domain of philosophy, but as they grew, they you know, philosophers let go of them and said, "Here, now you fly your, you know, spread your wings and fly." Do you do you hold to that kind of uh, theory of, of history and progress? Well,
2: I mean, I mean, it's true. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, just as far as like the way people use the word philosophy. So, mm-hmm. uh, what is today called natural science used to be called philosophy of nature or natural yeah. philosophy. So, mm-hmm. Newton's great work is called Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy. Yeah. Um. And I don't know, you know, what to make of that. Um, yeah. And, you know, just like in ancient Greece, a philosopher was just a person who liked the world of learning, right?
1: Yeah. yeah. They
2: were all philosophers.
1: Right. right. Yeah. That's a great point. Okay. Okay. So, so yeah, we can, philosophers can rightly uh, lay claim to, to a lot of that progress that, that's been made throughout history. Uh, myth number three, doing philosophy is all about giving your opinion or saying how you feel about things. What, what do you make yeah. of this
2: one? Yeah, I mean, I put that in there in the book because I suspect that um students who come to philosophy, like beginning students, might think that that's what they're supposed to do, right? Yeah. And like when they write a paper, they'll just like give their opinions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, well, who cares? Who cares if that's your opinion, right? We care if there's a rational reason for it. Right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, some people don't like this, but, you know, like, no, like I know there's a variety of opinions out there, but that doesn't help me. If I want to figure out what's true, I need somebody to give me arguments that I can evaluate, you know. Honestly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Great point. Uh, yeah, I would, I would. It was fun when I was uh, I was helping co-teach a intro to philosophy course, and I, I was able to teach on some of the puzzles. So like induction and external world skepticism, brain in that kind of stuff. And it was just funny where the, the students would who who weren't uh, accustomed to philosophy. I'd bring up some huge uh, problem from some great philosopher, and they go, "Oh, well, he's he's wrong. I think he's wrong. Like, well, well, why do you think that? Well, you know, I just don't think that that's right. I th- my it's my opinion that he's wrong. Like, well, you got to give me some kind of reason here. And by the end of the course, it was fun because they were arguing with me, and they were they intuitively. Uh, I think that you, if you draw that out and you teach them how to how to make arguments, like they know that. They need to do that, but they just need a little coaching on on how to do it. And some are more naturally inclined towards philosophy than others. And it's really cool to see. Oh man, I did not expect this student to be so sharp, but when they start thinking, they're really, really sharp, and they have good intuitions. And others who I thought, oh, you're going to be a philosopher, not so much.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: I,
2: yeah, I mean, you know, re- frequently your reaction to a philosophical idea is just like, no, it seems wrong, <laughs> <laughs> and. uh, yeah, that's a, that's okay. like in my view that's the starting point, right mm-hmm. you have your sort of interior reaction and then you just sort of you know part of part of what being a good philosopher is about is um being sufficiently reflective to um so you can detect why that seems wrong to you mm-hmm. so, like reflect on what's what's causing this interior reaction.
1: yeah, I think that's a great point so then myth myth number four uh, in philosophy, there are no answers yeah what do you what do you think about that? <laughs> yeah
2: yeah, I hate that, and um, other, other philosophers also hate it, actually, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's a bunch of relativists um, among students, or at least there used to be. I think relativism has declined in popularity. Okay. When I first started doing philosophy, like, it seemed like everybody was some kind of relativist or subjectivist. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, almost no philosopher agrees with the statement, you know, there are no answers. philosophy. Yeah. Anyway, I don't even know what that means. How can there not be an answer? So like there are some questions So, I can come up with ways that a question cannot have an answer, right? Mm-hmm. Like the question is incoherent uh, or, you know, like some of the terms in the question don't have enough meaning. They haven't been defined. They don't have any meaning or whatever. So there's no use of the question. Yeah. Or another one is um, a question can have no answer because it contains a false presupposition. Mm-hmm. Like um, the is the king of France bald? Yeah. Like, okay, you, you can't say he's bald, you can't say he's not bald because he doesn't exist.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> There's a false presupposition that France has a king. Okay, but that, neither of those could be the case with philosophical questions, right? Like, mm-hmm. do we have free will? I mean, that's not incoherent. It's not meaningless, right? Yeah. And it's not, doesn't have a false presupposition, right? What would the false presupposition be? So, like, I don't understand what it even means for it to not have an answer.
0: Yeah.
1: I've I've heard this one a lot actually, and um, oftentimes by by so well, I run in theology circles and philosophy circles, and sometimes the theologians who are, are extra dogmatic will there, there's no answers in in philosophy, and I think what they're getting at is there's there's no like set uh, answer for each one of the subcategories or ever, so it's not like everyone in metaphysics is a realist and everyone in epistemology is a proper functionalist or whatever. And, you know, and, and all the ethicists are hold to, um, you know, Kant's ethic or something. And so it's, it's a weird question or it's a weird statement because there's no agreement like that in anything, in any discipline ever. There's not, not all psychologists agree on uh, one view or one psychologist uh, uh, method or anything like that. So, I've, I've heard it taken that direction and like nobody agrees We're that's part yeah. of doing philosophy. That's why that's good philosophy is finding out why you don't agree and, and giving people counterpoints to their arguments.
2: Yeah. 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 I mean, um yeah, presumably the point is that there's less agreement in philosophy than there is in most other disciplines
0: mm-hmm.
2: and other discipline, like whatever, if it's theology, maybe there's even less, Agreement in theology.
0: Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah,
2: a, if you compare a science, through, well, there's more agreement in science than there is in philosophy. Okay, that's true.
0: Mm-hmm. Right?
2: But then I I mean I kind of think you know this might be confusing um, the existence of something with knowing it, right? Uh, so if the answer is unknown, that doesn't mean the answer doesn't exist, right? Yeah. And so like if somebody, you know, the example I gave in the book, like whatever, if somebody steals my car and I don't know who steals my car, I can't say there was no thief. I can say I don't know the thesis. right? Like you can say I don't know the answer to this question, but not there's no answer to it. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's a great point. So, how about those? There's um, there's a lot of people who I like philosophy for a lot of the reasons you said. I love just thinking about crazy stuff and seeing where it takes me, and getting sharp because of it. But a lot of people. Are more pragmatic than that and they they say well what what good is it for my life today if you can't tell me what the good life is then maybe i'll go over i'll go read some vedas or something instead uh what what do you make of like the practical use of philosophy are are we are philosophers taking that up right now is that is that something that that you're working on the 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 practical application of of philosophy
2: i mean yeah there are there are branches like um, applied ethics where you know you try to have some directly practical impact um, although like you know when philosophers are doing anything even when it's supposed to be applied it's probably not going to be very practical Yeah. Um, but also like I think this um, the people who would be asking this question are probably not going to be tuning into your podcast in the first place and <laughs> there's probably nothing that I could say to them
0: yeah. and you know
2: like um, the people who are going to be hearing my answer don't need the answer.
0: <laughs> mm.
2: It was like, if you're interested in the philosophy, then you don't need any further explanation. Yeah. yeah. And if you're not interested in it, I'm not going to get you to do it. Yeah. Notice, but right? yeah. But I do, I do think there's some value to it. But yeah. The, I mean, the practical value is probably that you start to think more clearly yeah. and more rationally.
1: Yeah. I found that I found that in my own in my marriage with my wife. Um, so you know we were if if we're thinking about having a baby or something, you know we're 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 looking into that kind of stuff, and she say, well, I just don't think it's going to happen this this month, and I'm like, well, why do you think that? And she's like, well, I just don't, I have this feeling, and I'm like, okay, well now we get some epistemology coming through. What what's your reason for that? You know, and just trying to help hey, you actually are not in a position to make that kind of claim. You can't make that knowledge claim.
2: That's showing how philosophy can ruin your marriage.
1: <laughs>
2: yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: I think it worked. I think it was helpful that that she was able – because, like, genuinely, a lot of times we stress ourselves out about stuff we think we know when we actually don't know. And oh, just a little, a little bit of help from Gettier uh, – can really go a long way in saying, Hey, I just don't know. It's okay that I don't know this. I genuinely am not in a position to know. So I don't yeah. need to stress about it right now.
2: Yeah. So yeah. it's true that you don't know, right? Yeah. Like you don't know if you're going to get pregnant or, or what, or, or, right. um, you know, like a, uh, I mean, I don't know, like she has a feeling, I don't know. I don't know if that's, um, evidential or not, but yeah, you know, like most people don't get pregnant in most months. So, right. Probably, probably correct.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> like it's not
2: yep. happen
1: this month. Oh, okay, okay. So that's what. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Now I got to go back and, and re- retool all my arguments here. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Yeah,
2: you. i'll know, start with the base rate. Whenever you do it, you know there's this work by Philip Tetlock on um, super forecasters, right?
1: Super forecasters. Um,
2: these, these are okay. people who are especially good at predicting the future. Basically, right. Hmm. Basically, I mean, he does, he does political questions like who's going to win some election or, right, the, sure. the war or whatever. And, uh, most people are really bad at that. And then he's, you know, he, there's a small group of people who are really good at it. And so like he, he has this book where he writes about what those people do. Yeah. Anyway. Right. So one of the things I learned from that is the first step is check the base rate, huh. whatever it is that you're trying to predict, just say, how often does it happen in general? Yeah your starting estimate and then you adjust from there
1: okay the base rate and then we can be super predictors i'm I'm excited for that that there might be a new rabbit uh hole to jump through for me yeah so, okay all right all right
2: I, mean, I think it takes a lot of work so it's not really worth
1: it. <laughs> yeah. well maybe you know i'm sure some people are more inclined to it but i'll just have to see if if uh that's my disposition probably not but we'll see uh, well, Dr. Humer, I wanted to go through some of the subject matters and branches of philosophy and um, get kind of a, a rough definition from you and then just kind of follow up with a couple of questions I have for you for each one. Does that sound cool? Cool. Awesome. All right. Well, let's start with metaphysics. Um, how do you how do you define metaphysics? What, what is it?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, well, it's philosophical questions about the general nature of reality, right? general nature of the world, right? But that's not very helpful. So it's more helpful to give examples. Yeah. Right. So, like, they talk about, well, do people have free will? Is everything predetermined? Um, they talk about things like, uh, does time have a beginning or does it go back forever? Mm-hmm. And, you know, does it go forever into the future? Um, there's like, you know, mind body dualism. Mm-hmm. Like, is the mind a separate kind of thing from the physical world? Uh, and then you have, like, do abstract objects really exist? Yeah. And number two, what is it? Does it really exist or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. Um, stuff
1: like that so so uh, on the cover I mean um your your actual title is knowledge reality and value do you see those as like um, so epistemology reality metaphysics and then value value theory and, and ethics and everything in there do you see those as like the three foundational um, pillars of philosophy or is that just like a, a catchy title
2: um yeah a little of both right okay. Okay. yeah I mean you know those are considered the three main branches of philosophy traditionally yeah. epistemology, metaphysics, and ethics. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's a bunch of other kind of smaller branches of philosophy, I guess, or mm-hmm. lower profile. Yeah. Um, you can sort of like, like I sort of see political philosophy as um, an application of ethics.
1: Yeah. That makes sense to me. Yeah. How, but, but how about like logic? Where does, lo- I always have a hard time fitting in. Where Where does logic fit?
2: Uh, debatable, right? You could say that it's a branch of epistemology. hmm. Um, but uh, you could say it's a branch of metaphysics, yeah.
0: Right?
2: Because you know, okay, you know, like one conception of logic is that well, it's sort of about correct reasoning, studied correct reasoning. Um, but another way of viewing it is, uh, is um, no, like there are these logical relations that are just like objective facts, mm-hmm. not normative and not you know not about your reasoning. It's just like an objective fact that. You know, this thing necessitates some other things. Yeah, it's so, a you know, necessary truth that it's P and Q or whatever.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so if you think of it that way, it's metaphysical.
1: Okay, so uh, what? So you already broached it, but like the number two, are you are you like a realist concerning uh, abstracta and, and and numbers and stuff, or, or a deflationary theorist, or what do you what do you got?
2: Yeah, two exists. Okay, <laughs> colors oh. exist. Okay, so I learned this. View about um, number two about numbers from uh, this philosopher Beyond Uk Yi, mm-hmm. who I read this article a long time ago saying is two a property or something like that.
0: Mm.
2: Uh, okay, so the view is uh, numbers are properties. They're just unusual. They're an unusual kind of property because most of the properties you're familiar with with require a single subject. Like mm-hmm. there is a thing that can have the property. The numbers are unusual in that they, except for the number one, they require a plural subject. Yeah, so it's a property that you have to have more than one thing in order for the property to be instantiated. Anyway, like so, two is the property that um, these fingers are exhibiting. Yeah, and also is exhibited by these hands. And
0: mm-hmm.
2: okay, so you can, yeah. see, you can see there's something that like these are things. There's something that this ha- situation has in common with this situation, and
0: yeah. so on.
2: Right? Um, and okay, and that's typical of universals, right? Where mm-hmm. it's something that multiple things have in common
1: do you do you think that there is like a platonic realm where these things uh exist or are, are grounded in yeah I mean I don't know what's meant
2: by a realm right so <laughs> the universals exist they're not in a realm I mean, there's not okay. like a place where the perfect circles are sitting yeah um yeah and you know what's my what's my argument that they exist um so um two is prime right that's uh-huh. true right yeah <laughs> and that that statement is a statement of the form a is f you know in terms of predicate logic uh-huh. f a yep. and the two conditions for such um, for such a proposition require that the subject term refer to something mm-hmm. and that that thing have the property that the predicate expresses or whatever mm-hmm. um, okay so you know two must refer to something <laughs> so if, if two is prime if that statement's true then two has to refer to something right
1: yeah. Uh, and I I like that.
2: refer to, well, you're
1: refer to two. <laughs> is that so I'm I'm definitely like that's me. I like that. I think that's great. But I'm I'm, I'm wondering if someone listening is going to say, "Well, you've just quantified over two, you know, because we can do this with with unicorns, you know, when you think about a unicorn and so the concept unicorn must refer to something but there are no unicorns. What what do you make of that kind of counter argument?"
2: I mean, what what is a fact about unicorns? <laughs> right, so like so, there's a fact about two that it's prime. So, you know, what the fact about a unicorn?
1: They have a horn on their head. It's like yeah, a narwhal it, horn or something.
2: Unicorns have a horn. Uh, yeah. All, every unicorn has a horn on its head or something. Yeah. Okay. But actually, the logical form of that is not FA, right? The logical form of that is something like for all X, if uh, x, then HX or something. Okay. So, there's a predicate being a unicorn. So there's a property of being a unicorn, right? Mm -hmm. Universal exists, this, but the property is uninstantiated. So there are no concrete objects that have it.
1: Yeah. Okay. So um, I guess going all the way back to like Plato and Aristotle and their beef, um, would you say there are uninstantiated universals? Like, like is, is unicorn just an uninstantiated universal? Yep.
2: That's right. Okay.
1: And that doesn't like, you said there's no realm, so it doesn't like exist somewhere. We're, yeah,
2: it has no location, right? It's non-spatial.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Is, I always have a hard time with this is when we get into metaphysics. Like, is that grounded in anything? Or did 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 that concept, did that universal exist before we had the concept of unicorn, and then we like discovered it, or did someone invent it and now it's just in our common parlance? And it,
2: yeah, ba- basically, there's an infinite number of universals, right? There's, there's one for just like every way anything could be, right? Uh, and only uh, only a tiny number of them, like you know, actually a measure zero fraction of them, mm-hmm. are recognized in our conceptual scheme.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. So, so would you, do you I mean? Do you consider yourself? Would you say that you're a? You're, I think you've already said you're a realist. Are you like? Can someone call you a Platonist? Does that does that fit well or no?
2: Yeah, they could say that. Oh, so, cool. Right. I mean. Yeah, you have to sort of like uh, define that, right? I know. Yeah, uh, there are different ways you can understand it. Like, so Plato had some confused ideas. Mm-hmm. Like, he appears to have thought that um, that the universal was like a perfect exemplar of right. itself. It's <laughs> so like yeah. there's a thing called beauty, the form of beauty, and it is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so there's a super beautiful object somewhere mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a form of beauty, and the other things are imitating it, and that's confused. And that leads to the so-called third man argument, right? Yeah. Where, like, okay. <laughs> anyway, um, so there has to be another property that is what that thing has in common with other concrete beautiful things. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so that was confused, but uh, modern Platonists don't believe that. So you know, I take it that the modern version of Platonism is um, universals exist necessarily something yeah. like that. Yeah. So even if uninstantiated, it still exists.
1: Okay that's cool I, I yeah i like that view um how about how about like logic um are there like the laws of thought is what they used to call them now maybe we call them log- laws of logic but we still got to get clear on what that whether the relations are like logical norms or something do you do the do logical laws exist as well like are uh, the laws of thought like non-contradiction is that a is that yeah. a i
2: mean um i mean there's a truth Right. Mm-hmm. So, like, the law of non-contradiction is true. It's a fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure that it's a law of thought, right? I think, like, you know, maybe it's a more metaphysical fact, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, all contradictions are false.
1: Like a like a proposition or something. Yeah. It's like a true proposition but, about propositions.
2: Yeah. There are okay. propositions. Okay. So there are facts about them. <laughs> like, nice. Every contradictory proposition is false.
1: Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Oh, yeah, so, so we're not we're not dialethean here. We're not saying that you can have a true contradiction.
2: You cannot have a true contradiction. Yeah. <laughs> now, I mean that you know that's interesting, right? And I did not talk about that in the book because it's sort of like too I don't know weird and sort of sort of recherché topic. But um, let's just say I think so. Like you know, Graham Priest is a clever right. philosopher or whatever. He's not dumb, but uh, I think. I think you're sort of like confused about the meaning of the word not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, and um, I mean, if you think that there could be a true contradiction, you haven't understood what contradiction means. Yeah. Because what it means is something like a statement of form P and not P. If you think the statement of form P and not P can be true, then you don't know what not means, yeah. right? Because by definition, when P is true, not P isn't. Mm-hmm. That's just what not means. Yeah. Right, so there are certain circumstances in which P is true. All the other circumstances are the not P circumstances. Yeah. Right. There's an overlap. No. (laughs) Take that away because I mean we're not.
1: That makes so much sense to me. I'm just so I'm scared of that guy. He's he's super sharp. He tied me up in knots. So yeah, I don't know if he comes on the podcast. I'm I'm nervous about him uh, him him working me there. Uh well let's let's jump into a, a couple more here of these of these categories um when it comes to epistemology do you find yourself uh in a particular holding to a particular theory of of knowledge or or warrant or justification or anything?
2: Yeah I mean I have a you know I have a number of views in epistemology but, mm-hmm. um I'm most well known for coming up with um the term phenomenal conservatism. Yeah. Um the view that
1: And um, you still hold you still hold that like I didn't know if that was a position that you're like, here's a good one that we could use, or if you're like, I'm planting my flag and this is who I am.
2: Yeah, that's my view, right? I think I'm the best known defender of this view. Mm -hmm. Um, Basically that the way beliefs get to be justified um, is on the basis of the way things appear. Yeah. Um, So if it seems to you that something is the case and you don't have any reason for doubting it, then you're justified in believing it. Mm -hmm. And that's the source of all justification in my view.
1: And that's a... That's an externalist account, right? Uh,
2: I don't, I don't think so. No. I mean, uh, okay. so it, it's seeming to you that P is an internal state.
1: Oh oh, yeah. yeah the seeming to you. Okay. So you are aware of that. Yeah. So, well,
2: so you, uh, yeah. so yeah, I mean, there's a couple of formulations of internalism, right? The internal state mm-hmm. formulation and the access formulation. And I, I typically take the internal state formulation. So, uh, you know, justification supervenes on your internal states.
1: Yeah. Do you, do you get a lot of flack for that? I, I, I've heard that a lot of the epistemologists working today are, are externalists. Um, do they, do they come at you for being an internalist?
2: Uh, yeah, not that much. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, phenomenal conservatism has come under criticism, mm-hmm.
0: but,
2: um, I don't think the externalists have talked about very much. Okay. Um, you know what's what's going on with externalists is like um, it just seems to me like they're blatantly misusing the word hmm. the word justified yeah so like, you can say you know reliability that's perfectly good reliability is an external concept but justified just doesn't sound like it just reliability just isn't justification yeah anyway so, you can think, so like I think the the better externalist view that's not a semantic error is, well, knowledge doesn't require justification. Mm-hmm. Rather than saying, yeah, it requires justification, but justification
1: is external. Yeah. Well, how about that that split between like warrant and and uh, the difference between warrant and justification that, that some people want to make a, a hard and fast distinction? Do you find that plausible? Is that is that helpful to say I'm talking about warrant instead of justification?
2: Yeah. I mean, um, you mean warrant in like planting ghost sense? Yeah. I mean, you can stipulate this technical use of warrant. It's -hmm. potentially confusing. In fact, I think um, even philosophers have confused themselves. Yeah. Because in that sense, warrant does not mean justification. Right. Right. It's not close. Mm -hmm. And we don't actually know what it is because there's all this debate about the analysis of knowledge, right? Yeah. And then, like, people talk about having more warrant or something. Whoa, 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 whoa! What do you mean more warrant? Justification yeah. comes in degrees. Why do you think warrant comes in degrees? Because mm. warrant is just what you have to add to true belief to get knowledge. That doesn't come in degrees, right? Knowledge isn't a degree concept. So there's no such thing as being more or less warranted, right? Yeah. Anyway, so these That's are, you know, point. this is how you can tell that people have confused themselves. They confuse the technical use with the um, ordinary Englishness, right? But anyway, yeah, the technical concept is a perfectly good concept, right? Yeah what constitutes warrant. And then there's a debate about whether it requires justification and then maybe, you know, it requires something else in addition.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if someone wanted to uh, get in deeper into your phenomenal conservatism, um, what, what would be a good place to start with uh, in on your work?
2: Um, yeah, I guess it depends. So, I mean, like for a sort of beginning philosophy student, um, you know, it's discussed in this book. So, you know, just. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for um, graduate students and professional philosophers, like my my article, "Compassionate Phenomenal Conservatism," is the most cited, I think. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I look that up, and that's where I give the um, the self defeat argument in sort of more detail.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, f- following on here, uh, we got a little bit more time. Um, pl- when it comes to political philosophy, I actually don't know. I haven't read any of your stuff on on that. Um, do you do you have a particular? Do you consider yourself a certain political theorist of, of a certain stripe?
2: Yeah, you could say that. So uh, yeah, so I'm an extreme libertarian. Okay. I'm I'm surprised to be asked this because usually when people are talking to me, it's because they read my political work.
1: Okay. Yeah. No, I'm totally ignorant of that. Um, I'm I'm more of a, a libertarian myself, so it's really uh, interesting. Do you do you? find yourself in like von Mises kind of camp?
2: Um, I'm going to guess not. Okay. Right. Um, uh So, you know, so my book, The Problem of Political Authority, hmm. um, the main idea of that is, gee, you know, the government claims to have a certain kind of authority over everyone else. And, you know, they get, they think that they get to do a whole bunch of stuff that would be wrong for anyone else to do like it would be a rights violation, right? Yeah. Like if I decide I'm gonna collect taxes from my neighbors, then they call me an extortionist, right? And the thief is <laughs> that. bad, right? Yeah. And then, well, you know, who do these people think they are? The, these IRS people, who do they think they are? Why do they, why do they get to do this? Okay, so that's the question about political authority. Yeah. And basically I argue, well, there's no good answer to that. It actually is no rational answer to why those people have authority over everyone else. Yeah. So uh, what you should conclude is, um, well, they don't really have authority. It's just this giant illusion that we're all suffering
0: from. Huh.
1: Yeah. So, Dr. Schumer, would you say would you say taxation is is theft?
2: It is theft.
1: All right. <laughs> <to say. laughs> uh, you
2: know, theft is taking people's property without their consent taxation
1: takes people's money without their consent. So that. Yeah. Nice. Well, wow, okay. I got to get into your political stuff. That's, that's, that's pretty wild. I like that. Um, do you, so do you find like natural light uh, rights? Do humans have, have natural rights or is that a, um, is that a convention that w- that is a uh, useful fiction for uh, addressing one another? Um, so I
2: think, I think people have natural rights. Uh, and they also have conventional rights. So okay. your uh, your rights can be affected to some degree by the conventions of your society, but they're not wholly determined by it. Um,
1: so are there inalienable rights that are that ought not be affected by your the convention of your society?
2: Uh, so the I mean the actual meaning of inalienable is you can't give it up or something like that. You can't sell it or transfer it. So there might be inalienable rights. And by the way, like. Too bad that Thomas Jefferson misused that word, <laughs> and caused everyone else to misuse it. After well, that, what, what's a better word there? You think? Um, I mean, sometimes people think like they're using "inalienable" just to mean super important or something. Like
0: yeah, that. yeah.
2: Uh, or maybe natural, right?
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Natural. Yeah. You can't take. You ought not take them away. Get, yeah.
2: I mean, it's true of any rights that you shouldn't take them away. <laughs>
1: so, yeah. 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 Well, you have a right to my, my, you know, maybe maybe grandma has a right to drive, but now she's senile and, and you should probably take that right away from her. You, you think or, or still no? Uh, I mean,
2: I'm starting to think maybe she doesn't have that right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, I mean, I like guess she is not competent to drive then I don't think she has the right.
1: Okay. But, oh, yeah. You, OK. So the right would be based in her competency. And when the comp- competency goes, so does the right.
2: Yeah. I mean, you could say so. She could have the legal right without having a moral right. We yeah, should, we should take away the legal right. Yeah. So that, yeah, that would be. A good
1: okay. Yeah, legal and moral. That's a, that's a helpful distinction. Um, we're Well, I'm still losing. I'm still lost for a word for uh, inalienable. Uh, super important rights. Yeah. Uh, natural rights—the ones we're we're born with. Uh, do you recognize that that we do have ones that are that we're born with?
2: Yes. Okay. So, I mean, like, uh, well, you shouldn't just like kill people for fines, so
0: yeah.
2: right? So there's a right to life, yeah, right. And I, you know, in my forthcoming book, um, Justice Before the Law, mm. there's more discussion of what's meant by right to talk. Okay, right? So, you know, so so and so has a right to so and so. It means something about there being um, agent-centered deontological constraints on how you treat other people. Mm-hmm. All this all this stuff about, like, I have a right to this, I have a right to that, that's just shorthand for some complicated deontological statement about what moral constraints apply to other people's behavior. Yeah. So, like, uh, I have a right to life means something like, um, other people shouldn't kill me, you know, without my consent, <laughs> even if doing so saves, like, two people. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah it, don't harvest my organs. Yeah. On the specific circumstances, because if it's like a trolley problem, that they can. Kill okay. Me. But but they can't push me in front of the trolley. They can divert the trolley, but they can't push me back. So anyway. Do
1: we? So um, do you recognize the distinction between negative and positive rights? Uh,
2: yes. So I don't really believe in positive rights. Cool.
1: Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah. Um, what what is that right? What is that right? The I know it's a complicated uh, topic as you just laid out or it, it's where you shorthand for complicated um, equations, moral equations or something. What are like the right to life, the right that I, I you, you ought not kill me. What's that grounded in? Is that, is there anything like intrinsic? Is it because I'm a, I have the potential to be a person or I am a, a person and persons ought to recognize other persons. How come you can kill a pig and not me, I guess.
2: Yeah, good question. I mean, um, there's no general agreement on this, this is mm-hmm. sort of unknown, right? right. Um, so, the way I, the way I understand it, the reason why we believe in rights is that we have ethical intuitions about certain particular cases.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, like, can you murder an innocent person in order to prevent two innocent people from being murdered? And most people have the intuition that you can't do that. So, we introduce this notion of rights, um, sort of like, sort of to express what we think about that moral constraint. Yeah. Um, you know, rather than just saying killing is bad, because if it's just killing is bad, then why not kill one to save two pigs? Right. Um, okay. And then, um, well, can you kill the pig? Well, then people have different intuitions about that. Like some some people's intuition would be, no, you can't kill one pig even to save two pigs.
0: Yeah. yeah.
2: Like, like if that's your reaction, then pigs have rights. Yeah. Okay, but I don't actually have a theory of like who has rights and why. Mm there are different theories
0: that philosophers
1: have, but they're not that compelling. Right? Yeah. Do you, <clears throat> I always wondered about this because uh, I know you're a systematic thinker. Do you have any, like, does it, does it change based on the day or are you just haven't uh, reflected on enough to, to put your, your, your idea or your opinion out there? Like just intuitively, do you, do you have any kind of, I think maybe <clears throat> human rights are grounded in this or that, or just kind of like, no, I'll, I'll get there when I, when I think through it more yeah. Deeply
2: well, I haven't found any argument that's compelling enough for me, yeah. Right? Um, I mean, I think that it requires consciousness, right? So, okay. non-conscious entity can't have any rights, like your computer can't have rights, assuming yeah. that your computer's not conscious, <laughs>
1: yeah, right?
2: Um, yeah. but I mean, I think there's a debate among sort of animal ethicists or whatever, there's a debate in that area about whether, um, um it's efficient
1: to be sentient or you have to be intelligent. Right. Yeah, that one that one's so interesting for me because I I you know, I'm thinking Thomas Nagel, uh his his, you know, what it's like principle is ground is is first introduced in a paper called What It's Like, Is There Something It's Like To Be a Bat, I think.
2: Yeah, what is it like to be a bat?
1: Yeah, what is it like to be a bat? And so it's like, well, bats <sighs> Nagel at least thinks bats are conscious, but so it, it, it is probably not just conscious, it's probably something like self consciousness. That okay. that sets us apart from bats?
2: They have, um, yeah. Like I assume bats have um, some kind of awareness, right? So, and that you know that's why that was the title question was interesting. Uh, it's interesting partly because you know they detect things by sonar. So, yeah. is it like is it like seeing or is it like hearing? Right. Or something else. Something something we can't imagine. Anyway, um, you know. So yeah, do bats have rights? Like I don't know. Uh, if they have rights, they, so they don't have to have the same rights that we have, right? Yeah. People will probably have more rights than bats or something like that. Yeah. Uh, sometimes people say, oh, you know, you know, you think animals should have the right to vote? <laughs> well, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess I would say if you meet an animal that can vote, then yes.
1: Ah, yeah. Okay. You have the right to vote. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. that. That kind of goes back to the capacities view of, of grandma losing her, her right to drive because she's not competent enough. And it kind of goes and ups and goes and uh, comes with that. So maybe if a bat became super sentient and intelligent and could vote. Yeah. Maybe Dr. Humor lets him uh, in front of him in line to vote.
2: Yeah, totally.
1: <laughs> no. Especially if he thinks taxation is theft, then we gotta get him up there. We gotta get yeah, off on there the plane. Yeah, are bats
2: out there. You know.
1: That's right. That's I think right. I think that makes sense. Also, with the the consciousness question. So, um, bats don't have the same. Uh, they don't have human rights. They don't have the rights that that we are afforded or, or given. God given, whatever you, uh, you want to ground them in. But they have different rights than a rock. You could grab a rock and throw it against. Uh, you know a. Another rock and no problem. But you probably shouldn't just go around grabbing bats and throwing them against rocks. Um, yeah. for for or, no yeah. cause.
2: Yeah, so I mean bats have interests and rocks don't. Yeah, so, and I think that's pretty uncontroversial.
1: They have int- like it wouldn't say interest like pro attitudes or
2: No, um you know, you can they can be harmed and benefited, right? Okay, okay. So um and that's pretty uncontroversial and humans have interests and in addition have rights. Although that's controversial, right? right According right. to utilitarians, no, no, there's no rights. There's only <laughs> right? Uh-huh. But anyway, so like, there's there's already fairly uncontroversially like um, a moral step that the animal is above the rock, right? Yeah, the rock has no. There's no moral consideration for the rock. It doesn't even have any interest. Right. Um, the the question of rights is has to do with whether there's a deontological constraint. Yeah. Right. So, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm tempted to just take a utilitarian view about the about animal interests. Hmm. Right. So there's a question like, can you harm one animal in order to harm an innocent animal in order to produce a larger benefit for others? Like, typically, you say you can't do that to a, a person. Right. Um, but if you can do that to an animal. Yeah. Hmm. In which case, that would mean they don't have rights. But that doesn't mean it's open season. That doesn't mean just do anything, right? <laughs> yeah. Rather, that means you revert to a utilitarian consequentialist kind of
1: yeah. Con- concerning um yeah, concerning animals, that makes that makes sense. I'm still here. There we go. Uh, yeah, okay that that makes sense. I, I want to see Kim. Do you tie this together with your other? Th- does this tie together with uh, con- um, phenomenal conservatism, like um the appearance of I. You appear to me to have rights. You are a sentient being, and do you tie this back in, or is this just a separate field that this work fits here and this work fits here, and never the, the two, right. never the twain shall meet?
2: I mean, so my second book, Ethical Intuitionism, uh, ex- explains stuff about how we know how we know ethical truths,
0: mm-hmm.
2: right? And so then I invoke phenomenal conservatism again there, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. The way that well, why do we believe that people have rights? Um, basically, people have uh, intuitive reactions to certain scenarios, yeah. ethical reactions, like you describe a scenario and then a certain possible action, and then you'll have the intuitive reaction that that action seems wrong
0: mm-hmm.
2: or seems right. And so it's on the basis of a, sort of a, a pattern of intuitive, certain kind of pattern of intuitive reactions to possible actions that you ascribe right to a particular being. And then, you know, and we have kind of maybe different intuitive reactions about the treatment of animals, which leads me to maybe give them a different ethical status.
1: Okay. Does that, does that position, um, does that bring you to like moral, uh, moral realism as well? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So,
2: um, yeah. Why, you know, why do I believe in ethical, whatever, ethical facts? Because you know, there's some things that seem to me right or wrong or good or bad, and I don't have any um, particularly good reason for doubting it.
1: Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's. I'm with you on that. I wonder if a if a society, if a. I don't want to bring in Hitler. Hitler always comes in in ethical debates and stuff. But
2: you can bring you know, in Stalin or Pol
1: Pot. Yeah, Stalin. Yeah, there's Stalin, Stalin's terrible too. No one. No one. No one uh, thinks that he's on par with Hitler, but he, he probably is there. Yeah, so, yeah,
2: he killed more people.
1: I know. He's just this awful, terrible guy. And um, in, in Stalin's uh, regime, you know, certain things were that we would say, that's evil. That's wicked. Starving a whole people group is crazy wrong. Even if everyone in that. Even uh, if everyone in that society agreed, which which they didn't, everyone was in the dark and stuff. But if they did, and they thought, yeah, killing these people, you know, the, the gulag uh, kulaks and putting them in gulags and all that, uh, they all had this intuition. If they had this intuition that that was right, and we say, no, my intuitions say that's wrong. How do we adjudicate? Um, you know, no, I'm a moral realist, and you're going against um, binding moral norms or, or evaluative. Uh, facts that you ought to know, but you don't because your society has inculcated these wrong ideas. in you, yeah. How do we go about adjudicating and, yeah. and arguing them, uh, uh, trying to, trying to give our position to them?
2: Yeah. I mean, so I don't know if I should take this as like, um, sort of a practical question about the real world or like um, a purely hypothetical, right? Because yeah. like real people, when you say, "Hey, look, millions of people are going to die," real people don't go. Yeah, it sounds good to me. <laughs> like, right? Yeah. Saying, intuitively, that seems good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, and um, so there are cases where people have gone ahead and like you know the, done this mass slaughter, um, but they wouldn't just say, "Yeah, intuitively, death is good." <laughs> they would give yep. some story like about, oh, you know, the kulaks—they're counter-revolutionaries. They're like. Threatening the communist paradise, whatever that's coming, and um, right, and so like the actual problem is, well, that's all false. Like the communist paradise is never coming, and the kulaks are not any threat to it anyway, even if it was. Yeah, (laughs) it's just like, you know, Joseph Stalin is just an insane paranoid guy. Yeah. You
1: know. Yeah. No, that's great. That's that's a that's a helpful distinction between the yeah the practical and and the hypothetical. I sometimes, yeah, I get those conf- I love philosophy so much. I'm like, why doesn't everyone just think like a philosopher? Why don't we just like think like? But yeah, practically, it's it it does play out a little bit differently. Uh, I wanted to. We're, we're just about out of time here. I just wanted to run through some stuff. Um, so concerning philosophy of mind, do you do you hold to a particular theory? Are you a, are you a functionalist or a dualist, or or where do you find yourself?
2: Yeah, I guess I'm a dualist, maybe an emergent dualist. Okay, interesting.
1: Yeah. Okay. Emer- Emergent dualism. That's that's pretty fun. Um. How about like um, philosophy of science? Where where do you where do you find yourself? I, I don't actually know a lot of positions in philosophy of science, but you're a realist and all other stuff. Uh, so I assume that's going to carry over probably into philosophy of science. Yeah. You
2: know, scientific realist. Uh, yeah. Of course. Uh. I mean, I'm you know pretty sympathetic to Bayesian accounts of scientific. Okay.
1: That stuff's so rough for me. I'm I'm trying to work into Bayesian reasoning, and it's just it turns into math. And I'm like, dang it, this is uh, <laughs> what I was trying to avoid. I wanted to t- talk about base reality and stuff, <laughs> but here we go. Uh, but I recognize the value, and and I need to work through yeah, it better. Yeah, it
2: turns out that there's you know a bunch of math in reality.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, how about how about free will? Do you find yourself uh, are are you a libertarian, uh, source libertarian, source compatibilist, compatibilist? Uh, you know, a denier, whatever.
2: Yeah, some kind of libertarian. I mean, I don't know how free will works,
0: mm-hmm.
2: but as as far as I can figure, it doesn't seem to be compatible with determinism. Yeah. Okay. And uh, it seems to me like I have free will. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the seemings is a that's big. That plays a big part in, in your philosophy. It seems to carrying over all Oliver. I like that. That's yeah,
2: and that's, and everyone else. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. All, all beliefs are based on seeming. Yeah, but yeah. Some people just refuse. Some people just don't want to call it that.
1: Yeah. Okay. And so then, um, I, I did like the, I did like the emphasis you put on philosophy of religion. Uh, I haven't seen that. Maybe I'm just missing it, but I, I like the emphasis you you put on it. And you said these are fun questions; these are important questions that we that we need to bring up. Uh, when when it comes to to belief in God, do you find yourself uh, a theist, uh, agnostic, atheist. Where are you at?
2: Yeah, good question. Uh, I mean, I guess I'm an agnostic. Well, I mean, it, it sort of comes out in the book that I'm agnostic about intelligent design, mm-hmm. but I don't believe in a triple omni god. So, like, I think. I think the traditional conception of God might be metaphysically impossible.
1: Yeah. He's omni all all loving, all good, and all, uh, omni uh, omniscient and all knowing. Yeah.
2: And all powerful.
1: All powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, man. Mm-hmm. I study this stuff. I should yeah, uh, Um yeah.
2: And, uh, you know, also like all of the major world religions, like I'm strongly convinced that they're all false. Okay. However, there could still be a creator. Yeah. Can't rule that
1: out. And so, it, so you're agnostic on the intelligent design. Um, was that one? Is that is that recent, or have you always been kind of open to? Oh, this might be right, or might might not be right. Or is the new the new uh-huh. work in that kind of swayed you?
2: Well, I guess I would say that my credence in intelligent design increased after I started thinking about the um, fine tuning argument. Sure. Uh, Michael Tully first like raised it with me, that you know. He's the first person who told me about it. Like, Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah, but, I mean, um, I think, yeah, I was always uh, sort of like, no, this is not true. I was skeptical about the world religions for like the last 20 years, not always, yeah. but since undergraduate. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and, um, you know, it's because there's not really a good, there's there's like a big mystery about why this universe is here and why, like, why there can even be this stuff. Like yeah. us. Right. Why is it possible? Because um, after you learn about the second law of thermodynamics, and if you accept that time is infinite, which I do, um, wow, okay. we should be in thermal equilibrium. Yeah. With near 100% probability, right? We mm. be in thermal equilibrium right now, which means there should be no life. And okay, and then you you can apply like this anthropic reasoning and say, yeah, but you know, occasionally, like just it's an infinite universe, maybe occasionally there will just be a random fluctuation. Yeah, that's true. But almost all of the all of the observers that appear by the random fluctuation should be Boltzmann brains. Yeah, they should not be surrounded by all this stuff. Right. Right. It's a big mystery about why all of this is happening
1: mm-hmm.
2: right why are we not in thermal equilibrium and it's just like you know randomness
1: yeah that's that is so interesting um it is also interesting that uh, the the eternal the eternality or uh, the eternal universe it, is that like you got like a bang crunch going on where you think that you know big bang crunch big bang crunch or is it just ultimately you know mysterious
2: yeah maybe yeah maybe there's a big bang and a big crunch Though, I mean, I understand that it is not trivial to make this work out. But, <laughs> um, like, nobody knows how you violate the second law of thermodynamics, right? Yeah. Like to, to reset the entropy.
1: Right. But when they do, when they figure that out, we'll make them the philosopher king, and we'll stop all this uh, taxation.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, in the um, traditional Big Bang theory, um, like, the, I think the traditional view has been, the universe began 14 billion years ago, and that was just the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. So, like, there was nothing before that. The first thing that ever happened was there was a huge amount of mass energy moving Mm -hmm. outwards, in a tiny region, moving outwards, for no reason. Yeah. There's no explanation. It was just like that at the beginning, at the first moment. Okay, and, all right, that's a theory. But, like, if that's the case, that's super weird, (laughs) That's really weird. <laughs> like, okay. And the initial state, you know, according to Roger Penrose, the probability of that being the initial state is something like one over ten to the ten to the one hundred and twenty four power.
1: Yeah. Just com- I'm completely lost every time I hear that. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and so and you know, like you go, well, um, there's a lot, there's like some philosophical answers where you say oh maybe there is no probability for the initial state yeah <laughs> whatever and some some philosophers say oh you know it's a law of nature that it starts out in that state and laws don't have any probabilities <laughs> okay yeah but anyway my response to this is well I have a different theory which I call the 1950 theory which uh-huh. said the first moment of time happened in 1950 and the universe just began to exist in the state that it was in in 1950.
1: With, with the appearance of age then?
2: With, right, Yeah, with everything in exactly the state that we thought it was in. Yeah. Right? With, you know, the galaxies were moving apart. They just uh-huh. started existing. Yeah. Those places moving apart for no reason. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, most people do not think this is a plausible theory. Right. <laughs> and I do not think it's a plausible theory either. But my claim is that theory is at least as good as the traditional moving theory. Okay. And possibly much better, right? Because um, the probability—if you pick a random state <laughs> to be the initial state—the 1950 state is vastly more probable than the Big Bang state, right? Sort of what, what,
1: what? Why is that? Why? Where, where's the extra probability coming coming in?
2: Yeah. So, well, so you know, one way of understanding entropy is in terms of probability,
0: right? Uh-huh.
2: So, it's like the The way of understanding the entropy law is is that the universe moves towards more probable states. Okay. And it's been doing that for about 14 billion years, up until 1950. So, like, the 1950 state is vastly more probable.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense.
2: Right. Where, you know, so it occupies a larger region of the phase space.
1: Yeah. Yes. Wow. That's crazy. So. That's a really that's a really good I I don't know what you call it intuition pump or a counter argument or just a uh, silly scenario that shows that if we're going to use this reasoning 1950 is a better uh, this is a better theory it's it's got more explanatory power more maybe I don't yeah, know I mean, to explain no well, it's the equivalent right it explains yeah. exactly the same <laughs> yeah right yeah
2: but the initial state is more probable so it's yeah. <laughs>
1: that's wild I love that well that that uh, that kind of shows your, your creativity as well that's one thing that stands out in the book uh, and we we read you know some of the notes from the back but I appreciate that you're having a good time doing this that you're having fun doing philosophy I think philosophy ought to be fun and I think you're a great example for a lot of us who should have fun it's serious yes it's serious and yes we should do serious work but if we can't make some jokes along the way then maybe, I think we're probably doing it wrong
2: yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah I, I hope that, you know, people wouldn't be turned off by the flipping jokes that I put on the back cover. So.
1: <laughs> well, especially if we're going to use this for our undergrads, it's, it's great. You know, get, get them to laugh. It's not this big, scary, boring, stupid stuff. It's awesome. And you could spend the rest of your life thinking about, hey, what if this tulip is a different color for me than it is for you? Let's think about that and let's have fun and let's see where we can take it. So, yeah, I, I, I love that. Well, Dr. Kimmer, thank you so much for all your time. Uh, I'd love to have you back on. Like I, I need to read so much more of your works. Um, uh, I'm excited to, to dump into that, but maybe I can coax you on to, to come and have some more conversations with me in the future. That
2: was good. Awesome. Yeah, I think you're going to like the problem of political authority.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely. Uh, that'll probably be the next one I grab. Um, so this has been Parker's Pensies. Um, this is going to have to do it for us, but it's been fun. And as always, all glory to God.